I'm Neil Barton, a private investigator in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Background Report. For this episode, I interviewed David Dion, who wrote the book Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. David is an investigative journalist who writes for The Intercept, Vice, The New Republic, and other publications. I was interested in talking to David because reading his book, I was shocked to learn how many Americans lost their homes because of phony and fraudulent documents created by the banks and their agents. Hello. Hey, David. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I know you published this book in 2016, so I'm kind of late to the party, but it's just so damn good, and I appreciate you talking to me about it today. Well, thank you. Well, the the paperback edition did come out uh, last November, so that's a little closer. Given the complexity, sort of, of this topic, was it a hard thing to pitch to publishers? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in part it was. You know, it was a story that sort of played out over a number of years, and I had been covering it throughout that time. And I think what made it easier for publishers to grasp is the narrative nature of it. The fact that I followed these three individuals and sort of unpeeled their story like layers of an onion and and really stuck with them, I think that was more compelling than if it was just sort of a just the facts, retelling chronologically kind of uh, tale. So I, I think having good characters, having, you know, subjects who, you know, experience this trough of despair through foreclosure and then discovered this, you know, stumbled upon this, these irregularities in their own cases and then applied that and and decided to do something, you know, bigger than themselves and looked for patterns and found that they were not alone. I think that made for a more compelling kind of narrative through line. And so that made it easier. It certainly was compelling because you kind of took a complicated topic and turned it into almost like a real-life financial thriller by focusing mm-hmm. on on these three people. How did you first encounter the three protagonists, Michael, Lynn, and Lisa, in your book? How did you first come across these people? Yeah, so I came across them through my writing about the topic at the time, sort of contemporaneously. There's a scene in the middle of the book where they attend a meeting in Washington with a lot of advocates and people involved in this foreclosure issue. And I was at that meeting. So that was the first time I met them. And that was, I think, at the end of 2010. That was right after the moratorium was put on the uh, large mortgage companies. And I had been reading their work prior to that. They really were a source of information that wasn't really available anywhere else. It It was very centralized. I mean, I was reading for foreclosure fraud to keep up on the latest sort of twists and turns in the case, uh, in in the issue. You know, Lisa's stuff and, and Lynn's stuff would be put on there and, and at their own sites. And, you know, it really wasn't until after I met them in, in the end of 2010 that they became sort of sources for me. But I was even reading their stuff before that. And once they became sources, you know, I, I, I wrote about things that they were writing about or tips that they they gave me. And then I got to know them a little more and got to know really why they got into this in the first place. It was funny. They said to me, you know, we were surprised that you were writing about this because you weren't in foreclosure, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. To, to them, it, the only people they knew that were interested in this were foreclosure victims or foreclosure defense attorneys. So it was unusual to them that someone that, that, that didn't have a personal connection uh, would get involved. So but to me, it was more interesting that they, you know, just sort of grew out of this very organic movement because they were victims. So uh, once I heard their story and, and got to know them a little more, it seemed to me that was a good lens through which to explore this incredible story of corruption and deceit and 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 mass fraud it it just seemed to seem to work yeah you use the word victims and that kind of goes to what the heart of your book is it i learned a lot about the mortgage crisis and mortgage fraud from your book and maybe you can tell me if my perception is off but it wasn't so much a matter of people buying homes beyond their means and then you know checking out when the bill came due this this is banks and mortgage servicers sneakily and just illegally suddenly changing the terms of the loans, changing payment amounts or misapplying the payments. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about the mortgage industry 
and this was hard to sort of keep straight within within the context of the, the story. Ultimately, where I land is on one particular type of fraud, and that's the false documents that were placed into these foreclosure cases to be used as evidence to prove that the mortgage companies actually own the loans, uh, and this false evidence was used to kick them out of their homes. But as I say earlier on in the book, the entire business of mortgages in the late 90s, early 2000s, was really built upon this mountain of fraud. Uh, and and you can go, you can start with the origination of the mortgage and how that process was corrupted all the way. I mean, you, you can even go further back to the appraisals of these homes, which were inflated to increase the price. The appraisals were not in line with the actual values of these homes. Sometimes the square footage was inflated. Um, So people were already looking at an inflated asset. And then even if they qualified for a prime loan, they would be shoved into a subprime loan. That happened in Lisa Epstein's case. Uh, Sometimes there were cases where a stack of mortgage papers would be given to the borrower and the first page would say that it's a prime loan uh, and every other page would be in the context of a subprime loan and the person would sign and then they just rip off that first page that said it was a prime loan and voila, you've just signed on to a subprime loan. That's right. That, uh, dot, that top page just magically disappeared all of a sudden right. after you signed it, right? Right. Uh, in other cases, it wasn't even the case that you would sign it. They would sign it for you. They would forge documents. They would use Coke machines at the broker's office as a light board to trace somebody's signature. They would falsify tax records, they would falsify other payment records to push people, you know, basically get through the underwriting. That was the underwriting part of the fraud uh, to push people into these uh, mortgages, claim that someone who was a busboy at a Mexican restaurant was making $100,000 a year. They would, they would do basically anything to get somebody into a loan. And the reason was there was a serious demand and pressure to pass these loans up the chain because Wall Street really wanted these raw materials so they could build these mortgage bonds and sell them all over the world. So the pressure was really coming from the investment banks on these non-bank mortgage companies, these originators who had typically had what, what are called warehouse lines of credit with the investment banks. In other words, the investment bank would feed them this money to, to create these mortgages. And if they didn't get the precise loans that they wanted, they would cut off the mortgage company. So the mortgage company's survival was dependent on a steady stream of subprime loans. And in some cases, banks like mortgage, Morgan Stanley would dictate how many loans of which type, whether, you know, uh, adjustable rates or, or negative amortization loans, they would dictate how many loans that they wanted uh, in a particular month or week from the non-bank mortgage originator. So that was really the, the part of the machine that was creating the need for fraud. It's similar to like the Wells Fargo case, where Wells Fargo, the more recent case, the fake account case. Oh, yeah. Wells, where Wells Fargo said that, well, we need each customer to have eight accounts with us. And we don't care how you do it, but you got to do it. And so the tellers or the, the branch uh, officials would have this incredible pressure on them to, to reach these sales goals. And that ended up leading to the fraud of creating these fake accounts. Well, it's kind of similar, right? You had these, these mortgage originators who were so pressured by the need to pull these subprime loans to get them up to the investment banks that their survival depended on, that they were pushed into creating these fraudulent mortgages. So there are some similarities there. All right. I know this is kind of a dumb question, but what exactly is a subprime loan? Is that something like a, is that more of a high risk loan with a higher interest rate? Yeah. So really it's based on the the credit score. So there's a credit score cutoff at which loans above that are considered prime. If you're giving a loan to someone with a 700 credit score, that's considered a prime loan. And if you're giving it to someone with a 550 credit score, that's considered a subprime loan. 
Okay. Uh, so, so in the, in the basic terms, that's sort of where it comes from, but uh, I'm using it a little more casually and it's kind of stands in for, yes, the kinds of adjustable rate mortgages, the teaser rate mortgages where you'd have a 3% or 4% interest rate. And then after two years, it would jump to 8%. That's an example of the type of loan products you had at that time. There were these products called negative amortization loans, which means that you were paying interest only you were, or you were paying even less than that initially. And the, the principal balance would actually grow in the first couple years of the loan. So there were all these kind of exotic mortgage products that were out there. And the reason that they proliferated in this period is that the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac used to control what is called the secondary market for loans. They would buy loans and package them and sell them in order to get capital to create more loans. And, and that's the way that the mortgage market grew since Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put into place in the 30s. Is that what they call mortgage securitization, that process you yes. just described? Okay. Yes, in a manner of speaking. What happened in the 1970s, particularly, is the Wall Street banks wanted to get in on that game. It was very lucrative, and they wanted to wrest control of some of that secondary mortgage market. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had certain standards. They would only buy loans that conform to essentially being a prime loan, a 30-year fixed-rate loan. That's what they would buy and package and sell. Kind of the way in which the Wall Street banks could get into this market was to offer loans that Fannie and Freddie wouldn't. And those are the subprime loans. They went through, and I detail this in the beginning of the book, a number of steps to change the law essentially, uh, to give them the ability to market and package and sell these securitized mortgage bonds. And they, they found this niche with subprime. And it took a long time. I mean, the first what they call private label, in other words, uh, not Fannie and Freddie, yeah. mortgage mortgage backed security came in the 1970s i think 1973 and it really wasn't until 25 years later that they really perfected this and started selling these subprime mortgage bonds in mass quantities that really took changes in law that were through the carter administration the Reagan administration, the Clinton administration. So it was it was very bipartisan. It was pretty bipartisan, huh? <laughs> to to get to this point. And then once they did, they were able to gather more and more market share. Because essentially what they were doing was they saw this as their gift to the nation, that they were expanding the ability for ordinary people to buy homes. Yeah, because they were lowering the credit needs uh, and your and the, and the financial picture of an individual who would be able to get these uh, uh, homes. So the, in their mind, they were expanding opportunity, expanding the uh, potential for wealth building and making this all happen. In reality, what they were doing was putting people on the edge of a cliff and then shoving them because obviously it became an unsustainable situation. And we knew this, you know, right around the peak of the housing bubble when people were starting to default on their first mortgage payment. You know, if you're, if you're defaulting on the first mortgage payment, obviously you should never have been put into a mortgage situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That bus boy is not even going to be able to afford the first payment. <laughs> right. And what? Exactly. So, and this, you talk about people being pushed over the cliff. This all started to come apart in about around 2006, right? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think that's accurate. The end of 2006, certainly by 2007, things were on the downslide. There was a lot of sort of stretching out and, you know, the, the, the crash didn't happen right away, right? It wasn't like right. in a week all mortgages went bad. Right, right. Uh, was, it was just sort of stretched out and stretched out. And you kind of had multiple waves of the foreclosure crisis. The first wave was these toxic loans that obviously shouldn't have never, ever, ever have been issued. So that wave happens and the market starts to fall. Then there's almost this feedback loop because this creates struggles in the financial markets, which makes it difficult for consumers and small businesses to get loans. And that's what helps lead this credit crunch is what helps lead to the recession. And the recession creates a whole new wave of foreclosures because now it's people 
who have lost their jobs or who get surprise medical bills. It's not a situation where they can get a second job to make up for that or whatever. So you had these multiple waves. It was first the you know, subprime. And then, you know, I remember at the time there was this line like we are all subprime now. Right. (laughs) You know, people who the the unemployment wave kind of crashes after the initial wave of subprime mortgages. So when you think about the recession, you really start thinking about 2008. But in reality, the seeds of that were in the beginnings of the mortgage bubble popping at the end of 2006. When all these servicers started getting involved, there would be a bunch of different parties in the chain of title, the title of your book, obviously. Can you talk a little bit about how these phony documents and assignments of mortgages started becoming prominent? Like, When did that happen when they decided we're going to skip dealing with the county recorder's offices because we don't want to pay the fees? Absolutely. So here's what happened. Uh, As I said, Wall Street tried to figure out how to get in this game of the secondary mortgage market. And there's a particular set of steps that they took that they needed to take. So it started with, as I said, you had these non-bank mortgage originators and they would make these loans, make these mortgages and sell them up to an investment bank. The investment bank would then package maybe a thousand of these mortgages together. They would open a trust. They would put all the mortgages into a trust or they were supposed to anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, put the mortgages into a trust. They would hire a trustee to handle the trust and manage it. And then the bonds would be created out of these mortgages, sort of backed by the monthly revenue, the monthly mortgage payments. Yeah. And those bonds would be sold all over the world to a, a teacher's fund in Indiana or to an institutional investor in Saudi Arabia or wherever. It, it didn't matter. So there are a number of steps that have to be taken there. You now have the investment bank who, who packages the loans, gets the revenue from the bonds and walks away. You now have a trustee that nominally is in control of the mortgage. The real owners sort of are the investors who are scattered all over the world, but the trustee nominally is the you know mortgage owner and but they don't do day-to-day operations on the mortgage that would be the role of a servicer mm-hmm. who the trustee hires to collect the monthly payments distribute them into the trust and then out to the investors that's a lot of cooks in the broth right yeah uh, and there are very particular steps the way that this would happen is the loans would be transferred first to the investment bank then through a number of different sub entities for reasons known as bankruptcy remoteness and that's a hard concept to explain but the basic idea is that in case the originator goes bankrupt then there were these other steps in the chain that make sure that the ultimate owner of the, the mortgage would still get paid. That's that's the easiest way of putting it. It's harder than that, but we don't need to go into bankruptcy law right now. Right, right. I understand. So you had all these different players, all these different steps. And what we have set up in America since the 1630s is a law, a county recording law that says that every time a mortgage gets transferred, we need to memorialize that with a document that says, I assign this mortgage from one person to the other. And you're supposed to be able to go into your your county office and say, I want to see the chain of title on my house, which means everyone who's ever owned this house from the time it was built until the present day. And there should be an unbroken chain because it's the law to between that initial builder of the house and the current owner. And this is what was not done. And the reason it was not done is, number one, every time you make a transfer, you have to pay a recording fee. And in this case, there were several transfers on every loan and millions of mortgages and Whoever it was that was in the position didn't want to pay that money, which cheaper. It was not only cheaper, but it was less laborious. The time that it would take to do these constant closings to memorialize these transfers and then find a custodian to hold on to the documents and make sure they got into the proper places. It's not just the fee. It's the labor costs behind that. You know, all of the ancillary costs to to actually doing this properly is what uh, they didn't want to do. It's all going to come out of the bottom line, right? 
Exactly. And they created this, situ- this system called MERS. MERS is known as the Mortgage Electronic Registration System. It basically privatized this concept of uh, recording uh, and transfers that was pretty normalized in America since the 1630s. It was MERS is basically a database. So the initial mortgage would be made out to MERS. And then any transfer, all these transfers I was talking about, could happen inside the MERS database. This was a company that was, uh, you know, maybe had 20 employees, 30 employees. That's it? Yes. And 60 million mortgages were in this database that thousands of people at all these different banks had access to. You could buy the corporate seal and become a vice president of MERS for $25. There was no quality control whatsoever on this database. It was literally an Excel spreadsheet on which the accumulated wealth of practically the entire country was sitting because you're talking about millions and millions of mortgages in the largest market in the world, the the U.S. residential housing market. And it was inherently insecure. It was inherently corrupted, uh, unable to have all the proper documentation. But it was a system that was essentially a privatization of this public record system. And predictably, it didn't work very well. None of this would really have been a problem if everybody paid their mortgages, had their mortgage burning party after 30 years, and all of this kind of shaky foundation of documentation wouldn't have mattered, right? Right. Uh, But it didn't. We had this mass set of foreclosures. And, you know, what happens when there's a default is that the entity that is the mortgage holder is supposed to be able to go back and use the collateral for that loan, which is the house, and take it over. But there's one small problem. They have to prove they actually are the owner of the mortgage. Just like if I said that you stole my car, I would have to have a piece of paper that says that was my car and not not a napkin, but a, a real piece of paper that's legitimate that says this is my car and, and you now have possession of it and that's illegal. So they didn't have that documentation. They did not properly convey these mortgages in such a way that maintain that chain of title. It was fundamentally broken. And it's a situation where it's governed by very specific laws and you can't go back. There is no provision to just sort of fix this. If the chain of title is broken, it's broken. And that means that you're not supposed to be able to fulfill the lien on the mortgage, Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, uh, foreclose on the home. So what were the banks going to do about this? They suddenly were in this situation where they had to foreclose on a lot of people and they didn't actually have the evidence that they were the mortgage holders so that they could execute the foreclosure. Well, what they decided to do was fudge the documents. So they created, whether through third-party document processing companies or through their own law firms or by themselves on their own, these mortgage companies and servicers created false documents. They backdated them. They they forged them. They mass-fabricated these documents that were trying to do these assignments and transfers after the fact. Yeah. Say that I transferred this mortgage on this day and now I own it and now you, you know, you have to get out of my house. <laughs> so, that's it. I should tell you, I guess at this point, for full disclosure, I worked as a temp for about a year at DocX, which is one of these document producing companies you've written about before. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting. I was a data entry clerk. I learned more from your book about what was going on at DocX than when I was actually working there. Wow. Um, Yeah, they kept everything compartmentalized, you know, in some departments. You were in Georgia then. I I was in Georgia at the time. Yeah, I lived in Atlanta for about five years. And that was out in Alpharetta. Yeah, Alpharetta. Yeah, it was an office park in Alpharetta. So, yeah. So um, that was around, let's see, I worked there as a temp for about a year. I'd say that... uh, from about 2009 to like very early in 2010, you know, and yeah. well, you know, that was the heart of it. And, you know, DocX is an interesting case. This is a shop, uh, as you know, uh, out in Alpharetta that uh, created, I think, over two million of these assignments. Yeah. Uh, and temps was 
you know, that was not abnormal. I mean, it was pretty normal for them to hire temporary employees to execute these documents. Now, they had a, a few select people who had the power of attorney to sign as vice presidents. These were, you know, I call them the lowest paid bank vice presidents in history, <laughs> yeah. uh, who signed these documents as the vice president of multiple different banks. So, you know, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, whatever, they would sign as the vice president of that bank. And because DocX needed to pump these things out so quickly to meet their deadlines, they would have anybody in the office sign on behalf of that individual. So there was a lady named Linda Green who yep. was worked at DocX. She was a former auto parts salesman. She was made the vice president of 20 different banks and everybody in the office would sign Linda Green and they would they eventually asked uh, the head of DACA said, well, why Linda Green? Why was she singled out? And they said, well, her name was easy to spell. And so everybody <laughs> in the office would have no problem spelling Linda Green. So there are documents in the public records that were used to foreclose on people that have Linda Green in 20 different styles of handwriting because everybody in the office would, would sign Linda Green. I mean, maybe not you, but certainly a lot of people. Yeah, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't one of the signers. I was working on a computer but, typically just checking boxes and things like that but yeah i know what you're saying i know you're probably rolling your eyes and saying yeah right man whatever <laughs> but i don't know absolutely i mean i don't by the way i don't blame like these the ten dollar an hour workers you guys yeah you know it was like they were trying to make a living this yeah. was during the recession you're talking about one of the few growth industries at this point was yeah. um you know papering over foreclosure errors and you know they were told that it was legal and and that's kind of all they had to go on and if they didn't want to do it well they'd find somebody else who would because this was a high unemployment era so what are you going to do you're kind of stuck but, you know, the real problem is the people who were the managers and the people who asked who were the clients and the people who authorized them. And, and that reaches on up to the highest echelons of uh, the top executives on Wall Street. And unfortunately, these massive documents that was created by DocX, the damage from that is so reverberating. I'm sure some of those documents are still being used in foreclosure cases today, right? Yeah, I get calls, emails, letters all the time still to this day of people who say, I found this fraud and this this my case. Uh, you know, what can I do about this? These false documents, first of all, never even really stopped. And even if they did stop, you know, they've polluted these public records, which are crime scenes, essentially. Yeah. Uh you know, they, they've been in there for a decade now and they will continue to be in there. And, and we will be dealing with this mess in courts, you know, until every one of these mortgages has been extinguished, whether by foreclosure or by or by paying them off or through some other means. One of the three protagonists in your book, I think it was Lynn, was looking through her documents very carefully and she saw a name come up on there. And you've written about this name before called Corel Harp, right? Does that yeah, sound familiar? Corel. I think your research from your reporting, you found that Corel Harp was actually the name of a guy who was in prison at the time for identity theft in Oklahoma, right? Yeah, that was her uh, finding, yes, that she tracked down Corel Harp and uncovered that. Okay, all right. So that's what I was just curious about, because there really was a guy in the office, and he did sign a lot of documents. You know, he carried around stacks of them that were like 10 or 12 inches high. I thought his name was Corel Harp. That's how he referred to himself. But uh, now you, your book has me wondering, was he like, was that a double identity or something? Was, his, was, that, was that guy's really name not Corel? I think the issue was that this it was as much an issue about backdating as it was about whether, you know, mistaken identity or double identity. The documents that were being signed over at DocX sometimes had a date that was much sooner than the date at which they were signed because they were trying to show that the entity owned the mortgage before they foreclosed. Yeah. You know, sometimes they got it wrong. Like Lisa Epstein's documents said that uh, U.S. Bank, which was her trustee, acquired the mortgage in May 2009 when she was foreclosed on in February 2009, which makes no sense, right? It means that when she was summoned, served the summons, U.S. Bank didn't own the mortgage they were suing her over. Oh, so wow. eventually they got a little more sophisticated and they said, okay, well, 
we'll just put 2007 on here. And, you know, that means we're, we're in bounds and we own the mortgage at the time that we, uh, you know, executed the foreclosure. And in 2007, at the, on the date of that, there was a Corel Harp who was in jail for this particular crime. So okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, it could have been that he was an ex-con, right? And But the dates matched up in such a way that there is no way he possibly could have signed that document on that day because there's a record of him being in jail at that right. time. Okay. All right. I see what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> These wow. That, that's funny that you knew. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a small, small world, right? He was this kind of goofy, silly, friendly guy. You know, I don't know. What's I kinda... funny uh, that Corel Harp, uh, the, this situation in Oklahoma was uh, was for identity theft. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, and that's kind of what DocX was doing every day, as in, in a manner of speaking, they were you know taking someone's identity and and using it to sign mortgage documents. So in Lisa Epstein's case, the people suing her to get her out of her house really did not legally own the house at that point or own the mortgage, I mean? Well, I mean, it was by their own evidence. Yeah. That, that's what it said. They, that was the first clue that she was given. So, you know, when she got her, her summons, when it was told to her that she was being put into foreclosure, she got that knock at the door. And she sees this name, U.S. Bank, as the bank that was suing her. And she didn't know who U.S. Bank was. She had never given a payment to U.S. Bank. She had never heard of U.S. Bank. There are yeah. no U.S. Bank branches in Florida, which is where she was from, the West Palm Beach area. And so she, she was very confused because she... First of all, it sounded fake to her, like U.S. Bank, like the bank in a movie or yeah, something. Yeah, whoever heard of U.S. Bank, exactly. Right. Turns out they're a, a large bank, but they're based in Minnesota, and they have no branches in Florida. So she didn't understand it. She, When she made her payments out, it was to J.P. Morgan Chase. And Chase happened to be the servicer on her loan, and U.S. Bank was the trustee. So she called U.S. Bank. And she said, uh, who are you and, and why are you suing me to take my home away? And they said, we have they said we have no record of you. So that made wow. her that made it even stranger to her. Like, here's a bank that doesn't know who I am, but their name is on this court document saying they're suing me. And that's because the branches and the trustees, that's sort of two different parts of the business. Right. Yeah. So so she started to look into this and, and that's how she essentially became self-taught on what this whole mortgage-backed securities market looked like. And then as she continued to fight her case, she found that the documentation was just wrong. And we're talking ultimately about false evidence that was put into a courtroom, into a county recording office and claimed to be true in order to take somebody's home away, the largest financial purchase that they'll ever make. And there ought to be a certain seriousness accorded with that situation, right? I mean, yeah. uh, this, this this is a serious business. And in any other legal context, if the attorney, if the plaintiff was putting false evidence into the record, they would be thrown out of court. I mean, there is just no question in my mind that if this was a murder case, if this was some other uh, uh, criminal case, if this was anything else, if someone was found to be delivering false evidence to prove their case, they would be laughed out of court. The judge would say, case dismissed, and you're lucky I don't put you up for sanctions. If they're lucky, oh. yeah, yeah. if they're lucky, they don't get sanctions. Judges typically don't look kindly when you commit fraud on the court. That's <laughs> Only in the foreclosure case yeah. was the by, well, yeah, this document, whatever, but we don't really need that document to prove our case. And anyway, she owes us money on the mortgage. And so you got to let this go. So, I mean, saying that it doesn't matter if the documents were faulty and fraudulent as long as somebody owed somebody money is like saying, well, we know that that suspect was guilty of murder. And so it doesn't matter if we as the cops planted a gun on him. Yeah. And, and that's what it was. That, and that was almost literally the alibi of the mortgage industry when they were caught putting obviously fraudulent documents into the record. Why did the judges give 
the banks such the benefit of the doubt? Did they just were the judges sitting up there with their robes on the bench and just looking as a simple matter? Well, this person didn't pay their bills. Of course, they got to get out of their house. I mean, how did they get right. away with this? Right. So there, there are a couple theories about that. The first is that judges did not have a lot of experience adjudicating foreclosure cases prior to the crisis. Even during the height of the crisis, 90 to 95 percent of these cases were not contested. You know, if if someone, if a foreclosure victim had the kind of money, resources to fight their own case, they probably wouldn't have been in foreclosure to begin with. So that's number one. If you think about it, prior to the crisis, foreclosures were pretty rare. And so you had a a rare circumstance of foreclosures and even far rarer that anyone would contest those foreclosures. And that means that judges just didn't have a lot of experience with these cases. Oh, I see. Okay. When the defense attorneys were coming to them and saying, no, the documents are wrong. They're like, what? What documents? What are you talking about? (laughs) Seriously. I mean, they literally did not know. There's a story in the book with a foreclosure defense attorney saying, you know, there's this rule saying it in a judge's chambers. You know, this rule says that they have to give this certain documentation to the borrower before they can foreclose. And the, the judge is like, no, they don't. That's not true. And he brought over the book and he's like, no, look right here. It says it. And and the doc and the, and the judge is like, oh, holy crap. I didn't know that. So <laughs> I mean, the judges had no experience. That's number one. Number two, if you put yourself in the judge's position, and I think there's some class bias that comes into play here on the on there are two uh, opposing sides. On one side is this very well-dressed bank lawyer who probably went to all the same schools that the judge did and, you know, runs in the same circles, is in the court a lot because he's, he's adjudicating all these different foreclosure cases. They might know each other socially, and they certainly are of the same elite kind of class level. On the other side, often is a pro se defendant, someone operating in their own defense, or maybe with an attorney who got into this predicament because they didn't pay a bill. So almost unconsciously a bias towards thinking that the bank lawyer in the nice suit is telling the truth rather than scruffy pro se defendant who can't even afford a lawyer. So, you know, I think that played into it as well. And then the third thing I would say is that judges are small C conservative. I'm not saying that they're Republican. I'm saying that they're small C conservative. And what I mean is that they want to solve and resolve a case with the least disruption possible. They want to narrow it down as much. They don't really want to make law. They want to figure something out, figure out some resolution with the least disruption possible. Just get it it off the docket, huh? Right. And if they decided in these cases, well, I'm going to say that there's no way that that you can prove that you own this loan, Mr. Bank, and I'm going to set the precedent that if you put in this bad document that you're not going to be able to foreclose, the judges know that that means that millions and millions of loans suddenly aren't going to be able to be foreclosed upon and banks are going to get into a real legal predicament here with millions of of bad debts on their books. And they weren't willing to do that for whatever reason. They they weren't willing to get through this stigma of giving someone a quote unquote free house. Uh, (laughs) Yeah weren't willing to, even if legally the it was correct that this defendant is uh, telling the truth when and this bank cannot prove that they own the loan, there's this very cultural mindset of you can't get something for nothing. And yeah. so they, they didn't want to do it. And there was a lot of resistance to that. Now, there were a few judges out there that thought the integrity of their courtroom was more important than this cultural bias against, you know, getting something for nothing. But they were rare. And you almost, you know, when you were when you were trying to fight these cases, it's like you had to hit the lottery to find a judge that was willing to even listen to your argument. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about these defendants that didn't have the resources to hire attorneys, one of them, Lisa Epstein, in your book, it was it was really remarkable how she kind of almost 
she couldn't afford an attorney. So what she did was she went to court every day and observed foreclosure proceedings. She dressed real nice like an attorney and she uh, looked up documents while she was in the courthouse. It was just amazing how your book described how she prepared herself in order to argue her case. It was a really valiant effort. Yeah, absolutely. So she worked, she was a nurse, cancer nurse, had no experience with financial law or anything like that. And, but she did gradually sort of become obsessed with this whole situation. And the the hospital she worked at was about a mile from the Palm Beach County Courthouse. And it was a straight line. I've I've been there. So it was, you know, just walk up the street a mile. And what she would do is on her lunch hour, she figured out that it would take her 12 minutes to get from the courthouse to get from the hospital to the courthouse. So she would walk 12 minutes, go into the filing room and look at cases for 36 minutes, walk back 12. And that was her hour lunch break. If she ran, she could do it in seven minutes. So she said she would get an extra 10 minutes to look up these cases. She ended up going to the county courthouse so often that she would start to get mail there. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, she sort of became known as the crazy lady at the courthouse who knew about foreclosures and people, victims who were trying to figure out where to get information. They would send their documents or letters to the courthouse, you know, to Lisa Epstein, care of the Palm Beach County Courthouse. And the filing clerks who knew her after she came in every day would say, hey, we got mail for you. And (laughs) eventually what Lisa realized is that what this showed was that people were just sort of adrift when they had when they got these summons for foreclosure. They didn't know what to do. There's, there were no support groups for people in foreclosure. It was all kept really quiet. Oh, they, yeah, and they feel ashamed too, right? There's That's the number one thing. Humiliation, she called it like in the 50s and 60s when people would call cancer the big C. They didn't want to say it out loud. Yeah. Foreclosure like the big F. Nobody talked about it. You didn't talk about it to your neighbors. You were costing them their, their property values. You, you didn't talk about it to your friends. You didn't talk about it to your family. There was this shame and humiliation around it. And so she wanted to build something that was that support group so that people had resources and even just a shoulder to cry on while they were going through their foreclosures. And so she built this place called Foreclosure Hamlet, a website uh, that had a chat room where people could talk to other foreclosure victims who had been through it and get get real help and real sort of camaraderie and companionship. It was almost about, as much about that as anything else. She said she named it Foreclosure Hamlet for two reasons. One, it was Hamlet like a village, like a community that people could rely on one another. And also it was Hamlet like the Shakespearean tragedy, which uh, is what foreclosures were like to her. So yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, foreclosure Hamlet ended up being, you know, a key part of this ecosystem that starts building up. You know, Lisa eventually through one of the early foreclosure web- websites, a site called Living Lies. In the comments section, she meets Michael Redman. They meet in real life. Michael builds his own site. They start hosting these events. They meet Lynn at one of these events. Lynn has been writing on her own site. And that's how the network kind of spreads. And you have, uh, you know, a a handful of these people who were putting up information on websites, meeting in real life, fighting this problem, trying to expose it to the media, to law enforcement officials. And the book really tells that story of all the lengths to which they go to try to expose this big secret. It seems like the book honors their legacy, too, as far as what they did for the public, ripping the scandal wide open and exposing it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was to bring foreclosure victims out of the shadows. I, I, it was very important to me. I felt like the, the homeowners who bore the brunt of the financial crisis, I mean, banks got bailed out, governments went on, but the people who, who suffered the biggest blow were homeowners. And they were not present in public policy debates. They were not present really even culturally. You know, when I've gone and talked about the book, I tell this story about how there was this movie called 99 Homes that came out a few years ago 
that was about the foreclosure crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynn Moniak was actually a consultant on that movie. I asked, I had the chance to interview the director and I asked him how he prepared to make the movie. And he said, the first thing I wanted to do was I wanted to find depictions of foreclosures in movies. I wanted to, you know, just see what that was like so I would know how to shoot it myself. And he said, I had to go all the way back to the Grapes of Wrath in 1939 to find an actual fictional depiction of a foreclosure in a movie. Wow. So and it's just an example of how this is just invisible and it's invisible by design, right? Because there's all this shame. People don't want to talk about it. But, you know, even culturally, there's no sort of. There's no entry point for people to, to even know what it's like to be in foreclosure. And so that was a key part of what I wanted to do is, is to really display that process of the feelings that people go through, the emotions, the, you know, all of that. And then I wanted to describe how a handful of people and, and you know, Lisa and Michael Lynn aren't the only people who broke this open. They were part of a, a large community that was working towards this goal. But I thought that using them as people who were foreclosure victims, who had no institutional knowledge, who were not lawyers. I mean, Lynn was a lawyer, but she was an insurance lawyer. Yeah. Uh, uh, who were not who had no experience in government, who had no experience in activism and to, to take the, see their journey becoming activists, becoming part of a movement and and doing that in in a way that was very selfless while fighting their own foreclosures at the same time, I just thought was a really great way to show this this massive fraud that went on, uh, the biggest consumer fraud in American history, in my opinion. Is it fair to say that these three people did more research than any law enforcement agency? As far as investigating this, I think I do say that, yeah. um, you know, they they did find a few people within the law enforcement community that were willing to hear them out, their claims. There were two individuals in the Florida attorney general's office, Teresa Edwards, and now I'm forgetting her other name, who were a pair of career attorneys who had this incredible meeting with uh, Lisa and, and Michael, where Lisa finds out that someone else in the office was moonlighting as a robo signer as yes. someone signed these documents. Yeah. And uh, Teresa, and, what is her name? What is the other name? It's I Teresa can't think Ed of it either. <laughs> June Clarkson. June Clarkson. June Clarkson, yeah. June and Teresa. And they paid a price. Yeah. They paid a price for taking this case seriously. They ended up losing their jobs. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. But in this initial meeting, June Clarkson and Teresa Edwards say, What do you mean someone in our office is doing this? You wait. <laughs> and they leave. And yeah. they leave Michael and Lisa in this room. And by the way, the way they got there was, you know, it was a law office and, and they, you know, went down one elevator and up another and, and security were putting guards, your room that yeah. they were asked for water. They said, no, uh, it was just like this really creepy situation. Yeah. And they totally thought that they uh, when they left, they're like, OK, they're going to put us in jail now. Like, like they. That was their paranoid kind of feeling when Clarkson and Edwards leave them alone in this office. They had to shut off their cell phones. They had no communication with the outside world. Finally, like 15 minutes later, June and Teresa come back and they say, yeah, we checked this out and you're right. And now we, you know, we want to hear your story. And it was almost like they needed to tell them that about the, the individual in their office to get their, their trust. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so they, those two definitely worked this and did a lot of investigation on this. But yes, uh, what happened is in 2010, a new attorney general comes into the state of Florida, Pam Bondi, who uh, everybody knows now for a relationship with Trump. Uh, but at the time in, in 2011, when she starts, she got a lot of money from the mortgage companies and particularly the foreclosure mill law firms, the law firms that worked for banks and did foreclosure cases down in Florida gave a lot of money to her campaign. And those were some of the uh, companies that were really under scrutiny from June Clarkson and Teresa Edwards. And they were essentially pushed off these cases. They were told to not push any further. 
and eventually were fired for trying to you know, prosecute. For doing their uh, jobs. For doing their jobs. And, and a similar thing happened in, in Nevada, where there was an assistant attorney general named John Kelleher, who actually started and prosecuted a case against two individuals who, whose names were being forged on all these public documents that were used in foreclosure cases. And he had a star witness, an, a lady named Tracy Lawrence, who was actually the one who did the forging. And she was willing to come forward and she did a plea deal. And when the date of her sentencing was going to come, she was going to get a suspended sentence. When that date came, she didn't show up at the hearing and they went to her house and they found that she had committed suicide. And it was a very strange uh, crime scene. John Kelleher shows up. He sees her with uh, Tracy Lawrence with uh, all these pills uningested in her mouth. He sees a window open in her apartment. It looked like kind of strange to her, but was immediately called a suicide. And to this day, Kelleher doesn't believe, and he, through subordinates, told Lisa and Lynn this, doesn't believe it was a suicide. Believed that one of the entities, that LPS, Lender Processing Services, uh, that was the, the company that was going to be at fault here, did something and made sure that she was out of the picture. And I can't confirm that necessarily, but it's it's one of no, those strange... No, but the circumstances around that woman's death are pretty suspicious, though. Absolutely. It's one of the strangest and most suspicious parts of this entire narrative. And, and ultimately, that case crumbled, and John Kelleher ended up getting retaliated against. He was put in a cybercrime unit when Nevada had no cybercrime statute. He sat there for three months and like had nothing to do, and and then he quit and he ended up running a martial arts studio. So uh, it, it's the people who stood up in this case faced repercussions and the people who didn't stand up were the ones that got ahead. Yeah. And can I ask you one more thing? Talk about strange things happening in this case. Lynn Simoniak, the third protagonist in your book, she's sitting in a flight one time. She's on a plane and a guy next right. the guy next to her in business casual clothes basically makes a death threat about what she's doing. Yeah. And then so, you go, and then they sit there silently and awkwardly enjoy the rest of the flight together. Who <laughs> do you have any idea who that guy was or where he came from? We don't. That's an interesting situation because at the time, Lynn had not really gone public. That she was working towards uh, attempting to sue any bank or, or engage in any lawsuit, talk to any law enforcement official about any of this. She was traveling to South Carolina to talk to a U.S. attorney there about a case, but it was not public. I mean, the only people that would know would be a, a small handful of people on her legal team and obviously the people in that office. And she was flying back. And yeah, there's a guy sitting next to her and she goes up to get a magazine and, and the guy leans forward and says, you know what happens to people who sue banks? Uh, and she says, what? And she, he says, they get killed. And yeah, I, I, I make kind of a joke in the, in the book that if this was a movie that it would end there, right? That would be the, that would, and that would cut away and you would just yeah. see her face of horror and it would cut away. But no, the flight has to start, right? And, and, and they have to fly and they're, you know, it's FAA regulations. They have to sit together, right? So yeah. this guy who made this death threat is just sort of reading the paper for the next two hours. And Lynn describes it as being just paralyzed. Like this guy just sort of made a, a, a subtle death threat towards me. And I don't know what to do right now. And, you know, nothing eventually came of it. But there is, you know, there were these situations w that made Lisa Michael Lynn paranoid later on in the case where Lynn's car was broken into. She lives in a gated she lived in a gated community, which are pretty commonplace in Florida. And somehow this uh, her, her car got broken into. She would hear these strange electronic noises in and around her house as if she was maybe being bugged. When they would talk to each other on the phone, there were clicks on the line. Clicks on the line, uh, yeah. They believed that there was some form of surveillance going on. You know, it's not something they could necessarily prove, but there are a lot of strange coincidences. And then there's a very funny story where Lisa gets something in the mail, uh, and it's like this strange auto part. <laughs> And she doesn't know what it is. She's like, is this a pipe bomb? What is this? And she tells Lynn about it. And Lynn says, like, get rid of it. Throw it out. Just just get it. Get it gone. 
And it turns out it, it came from Michael because he was between homes at the time and he needed this part to replace on his vehicle. So it was, you know, it kind of showed how the paranoia would even get the better of them. Right? <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a used part. It stunk like gasoline, too, which made it even more <laughs> freakier. Correct. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was almost like they were turning inward on themselves, made to be paranoid so that they would be less, less effective. Yeah. And unfortunately, the kind of thing that does happen with heroes happened with Lisa and Michael. They both suffered in their personal lives because of this obsession they took on, right? Because of this issue. Yeah. Both, both of their marriages broke up. They definitely sacrificed almost everything for this situation. They, they really became obsessed. Lisa and Michael met at this conference and they, they went to dinner and they made this pact like we, we are going to do this. We are going to focus on this until we solve the problem. And when you're that driven, the rest of your life kind of falls away, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you, you end up sacrificing. Lisa says that she lost, you know, several years of her daughter's childhood through this, oh, that, sure, that, yeah. she, that she described this pattern that she would be so focused on going through the public records, on, on, on updating the website, on, you know, gathering more information that she would just sit her kid in front of the TV. Uh, and, and she felt like she lost a couple years of that childhood experience. And, you know, it's a different situation now, obviously, with her as she sort of left this in the past. But uh, she described it to me as like a romance, right? Like she was so obsessed with this situation and trying to solve this problem. It was just intense and, and, and emotional, and it was something she couldn't lay down. Have you kept in touch with these people? Because these weren't public figures originally. How, how are they handling this newfound attention you know, in the have last kept couple of years? With, yeah, I have kept in touch with them. You know, at the time that the book came out, both Lisa and Michael were unemployed. Since then, Lisa has taken a job and she's actually doing my job. She's an investigative journalist oh, cool. uh, at, at a publication and she's doing spectacular. She does these great stories. But, you know, I mean, her life still is pretty small. Uh, she still lives in the same little condo in Palm Beach uh, with her daughter mm -hmm. and uh, she works from home, you know, telecommutes kind of thing. Michael has uh, kind of restarted his website and fits and starts. He's actually looking at a different aspect of this now, which is the single family rental boom, which basically private equity firms and Wall Street companies uh, bought up a lot of these foreclosures and started renting out the properties as single family homes. And they've actually created securities, securitizations based on the rental revenue. So these are a totally different type of bond. Oh, here we go again, huh? Right, right. So he's now become more involved and interested in that aspect of this uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's sort of, you know, still sort of on the edges of this. And then Lynn and, and there's an epilogue in my paperback edition that kind of updates where they are now as of last summer. And uh, Lynn had a recurrence of her cancer. Oh, uh, she. Geez. Um, you know, she had breast cancer. I, I described that within the book and she survived and it, it sort of recurred. But she she thought that at one point they thought it was quite serious and she was so battered by the chemo that she wanted to uh, stop the treatments. But she's still going. I actually got a, a something from her just a couple weeks ago in the wake of uh, the, the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. She said uh, this is bad for, you know, uh, us on on Deutsche Bank because there's a Deutsche Bank case that might be coming up through the Supreme Court. So she's, you know, uh, amazingly, you know, even though even though all three of these people say that, you know, that was a time, a moment in time. And I put this behind me. They all still are interested and involved in one way or another, you know. Oh, that's good. Do you have any new projects you're working on right now? What do you think the next book will be? Well, that's a good question. I'm working on something around monopolies. That's something that I've focused on in my journalism. You know, I still write, you know, on a weekly basis uh, for various websites. Yeah. Uh, the Intercept. You write for The Intercept. Vice, right? Vice sometimes, sometimes New Republic. More and more, I've been writing about monopolies and, and 
and how we live in an age of extreme concentration where a few handful of companies dominate sectors of the economy, whether you're talking about there are four airlines, there are four banks, uh, there are in your neighborhood, you probably have one choice for cable. There's one company that controls most uh, internet searches, Google. There's one company that controls most social media sites, uh, Facebook. Uh, there's Amazon. There's, there's, I mean, it's, it's something that you see in sector after sector after sector of the economy. And that has implications that are more than just consumers paying higher prices because there's no competition. There are implications for workers. There are implications for inequality, there are implications for quality of service, for the ability of outages to breaks in supply chains to really uh, cause chaos. So I'm interested in writing a book that takes, you know, looks at little scenes of monopoly throughout the economy and, and makes an argument that way. So uh, that that probably is the next big project. But I'm always writing about, uh, you know, uh, we live in a, uh, what I call for journalists a target rich environment. <laughs> That's so, right. No shortage of stuff to write about. All right. Well, I, I'm going to keep checking out your articles, and I'm looking forward to your next work, you know, and uh, I really appreciate you talking to me today about your book. Absolutely. I, you know, Thank you, and it's great, great to talk to a DocX worker. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's do it again sometime. All right, terrific. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thanks to David Dyan. Check out his book, Chain of Title, on Amazon.com. You won't regret it. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast. Kevin's website is incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.